Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. This week, a deep dive into and through some critical travel pocketbook issues. Let's start with junk fees and some other nickel and dime approaches from hotels. Don Gilbertson of the Wall Street Journal has the report on what's happening and what you should know. Then, aviation consultant Mike Boyd on why airlines are ending service to so many small U.S. cities and what's the real impact for travelers. Some surprises there. And batting third, Zach Griff from The Point Sky on how airlines are moving fast to devalue their frequent flyer programs and what, if anything, you can do to protect and use those hard-earned miles. First up, the Wall Street Journal's Don Gilbertson. It's harder to focus than ever these days. Thankfully, C4 has reinvented the energy drink game with C4 Smart Energy, the only energy drink clinically proven to provide enhanced mental focus, containing 200 milligram of natural caffeine, a blend of vitamins and zero sugar. It was formulated to support your well-being and help you feel your best, all while enhancing mental focus. From your brain to your body, C4 Smart Energy does it all and tastes amazing. Look for Smart Energy in the beverage aisle at your local Kroger, Albertsons, and Safeway grocery stores. C4 Smart Energy. Stay focused. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod 
to 500-500. Welcome, Dawn. Hi, Peter. Thanks for having me. You got it. So now, you know, we've gone from resort fees to destination fees. I remember a fee that was charged by the Sheridan in San Juan that was something ridiculous per day. And what you got for that was a free yoga class. And I, and, <laughs> That's a lot of resort fees. <laughs> yeah, and and I like to joke that if I actually took that class in the middle of downward dog, I would be meditating on why I'm paying for this resort fee. <laughs> so, <laughs> so now, it, according to a piece that you just did in the Wall Street Journal, we've gone beyond resort fees now to new fees that hotels are stacking in. Uh, early check-in fee, late checkout fee, and the scale and the range of these fees is outrageous. Yeah, I mean, it's been uh, anybody who, who goes to Vegas even once a year is familiar with these, um, as with so many hotel fees like resort fees. Um, you know, they have so many hotels there and they have so much pricing power there that, you know, fees often start there. And uh, so Las Vegas has had early, you know, the big chains, the MGMs and the Caesars of the world have had these early check-in, late checkout options for several, several years. Um, you know, what piqued my interest in doing something on it right now was I was in, in Vegas this summer for work, you know, summer slower, but still, I mean, Vegas is always packed. And I was checking into the Cromwell, which is a boutique Caesars hotel. And it was 2.45 p.m. And the front desk clerk, I said, I just wanted to get to my room. I needed to start working. I tried to charge me $35. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, it was 2.45 p.m. Check-in was at 4. And I was just stunned, like, that it had gotten to this point. Um, you know, I've since talked to the hotel, and they're like, you know, we don't you know, we don't have a lot of inventory. Occupancy is, like, at 99%. I, I just still thought it was pretty – I felt like a shakedown to me, frankly. Uh, so I decided to look into it a little more. And what you found is that Las Vegas has no monopoly on this. No, you're seeing it more and more, you know, even at the big chains, you're, you're seeing it. And, and what a lot of the big chains say is it's up to individual hotels. Um, so it's really a crapshoot. You know, people, you, you just, you never know what you're going to get when you get to the front desk. Frankly, even if you have status, I did talk to some travelers, you know, with, with status in one of the big hotel chains. And, you know, those tend to, as you well know, uh, the higher tiers allow you to have late checkout. There's nothing really in writing generally about early check-in. But um, so, uh, some of those travelers were telling me that they've, they've been having some issues. And, you know, frankly, some of it goes to where we are in travel today. You know, I mean, who hasn't been to a hotel that was sold out? So uh, it, it really is a, a balance and a struggle for hotels. I, of course, talked to hotels for my piece. And um, I'm not going to say you have sympathy for them, but you understand, you know, this, this juggle they have to do every single day. Sure. Well, you know, it's a matter of minutes, as you you experienced. Uh, for example, in your piece, you talk about the, the Hyatt Place in Boston. They have a checkout fee. If you want to stay past 1 p.m., that'll be 50 bucks. 2 p.m., 75 bucks. 3 p.m., 100 bucks. And we're seeing this all across the country. My question to you, Don, as it, as it even applied to your own experience, is are these fees negotiable? Can you, can you get rid of them? Well, you don't have, first of all, they're 100% optional. 100 percent. You know what I'm saying? Like you don't have to check in early to any hotel and you don't have to stay later. You know what I mean? If, if your flight 
um, you know, arrives early or departs really late, you know, stow your bag. So, so this isn't, this isn't, a, a, you know, you can't directly compare these to resort fees, which, I mean, I know they're negotiable and I fight them all the time, but in general resort fees, you know, hotels say are mandatory. These are optional fees. Uh, so uh, I don't think like, I, I don't think you could go to, you know, that Hyatt, which I did, I say at the Hyatt place. I didn't need a late checkout. Uh, in that case, actually, I thought, okay, well, that's, at least they're, they're laying the ground rules, right? So, so there's not this flood of people calling at 6 a.m. on checkout day and saying, hey, um, can I have a late checkout? Because everybody does. Everybody wants an extra hour, extra two, you know, unless you have a super early morning flight. So they're just kind of saying, look, if you want it, we'll work with you. Here's what it's going to cost. Um, I generally don't think it's worth it, but, you know, like on the early check-in side, I've paid it exactly once. Also in Las Vegas on a work trip. It was 40 bucks, but I had to get into my room and I didn't have, you know, like I, Las Vegas is a loud place. You've probably tried to work there too. Like you can't, you can't just go to the lobby and crank out a story. <laughs> it's too loud. Exactly. But, but let me give you the converse, Dawn. How many times I can speak from my own experience. Mm-hmm. Have you checked into a hotel at the time they tell you the check-in starts, but your room's not ready for three hours. Where's my fee? Well, and, and it, it's funny because I heard, as you might imagine, uh, I heard from a lot of people on that front. And I've also heard a lot of people say, which is not a bad idea, but also probably would be a logistical nightmare. Where's my refund if I leave your hotel at 6 a.m. the next morning and I'm in my hotel for, you know, six six hours or fewer than six hours or whatever? I, I don't think we're ever going to, you know, some hotels uh, have experimented with the whole 24-7 check-in. It sounds like a giant giant nightmare to me um and then you know, for them, for them then, to manage and then there are the, and then there are the hotels don that rent the room by the hour but i don't think you and i want to go there <laughs> no i'm pretty sure i don't <laughs> but there are places like uh not in that category like the twa hotel you know kind of is famously known for um you know allowing you i did it once on a trip to new york last year uh allowing you to you know just rent a room for part of the time now it wasn't cheap you know what I mean? And I think the bottom line here for people is if you have to, and I'm not really sharing any secrets here. If you have to get work done, like you're arriving super early and you have to get work done or you want to start your vacation or whatever reason you want to be in that room. And the same thing on the high end, you know, on the departing end, just book the hotel the night, you know, book the hotel an extra night. I mean, I had somebody email me today, a traveler saying, you're painting everybody like cheapskates. Uh, you know, they don't want to pay these fees or pay for an extra night. He said he always pays. Well, you know, not everybody can do that. Exactly. We're talking to Don Gilbertson from the Wall Street Journal. I'm going to give you, you know, you mentioned Las Vegas. I got to give you a story that just came over the transom to me yesterday from a travel agent who listens to this show. Listen to this. He goes, this is my last word on resort fees. He says, admittedly, I have a great room rate checking into Paris, Las Vegas tomorrow. The resort fee... Well, the room rate, what do you think the room rate was? Here it comes. In Las Vegas, in, at Paris at Las Vegas, his room rate was $24.24. Now, get ready for this. The resort fee, $52.10. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, that happens in Vegas all summer. Right. So wait, there's an epilogue here. He sent me an email today. It said, let me follow up to what happened with the resort fees. The hotel reversed my resort fee for the entire stay due to the fact that they had, one, no housekeeping at all, two, no towels or linens due to staff shortages and supply chain issues. So 
There's your answer. They're charging you for something they can't even deliver. Well, and and I and I'm sure you also um, tell people this. Uh, I did a column earlier this year or this summer on fighting resort fees, and I do it. I do it almost every stay that has a resort fee if something goes wrong on that trip. I just had it happen uh, for another work trip there, and you know I get into my room and somebody had smoked. I, I mean, it was awful. A smoke detector went off in the middle of the night. And I was like, you know what? I'm not, you know, can you please remove that resort fee from my, you know, cause it's the only leverage you have if you don't have like a ton of charges or, you know what I'm saying? Like, and, and the woman, um, happily took it off. So I don't think some people, I don't think some travelers, you know, maybe they only go on a leisure trip, you know, once or twice a year. I don't think they know that that, you know, sometimes or often you can fight those. You're not always going to win, but it's certainly worth a try. My thanks to Dawn. In the last 18 months, many U.S. airlines have substantially reduced and in some cases have entirely eliminated service to a number of U.S. cities. So how bad is this? And what real impact is it having on those communities and their travel choices, not to mention the cost of air travel? Aviation consultant Mike Boyd weighs in. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Our friend Mike Boyd. How are you, Mike? I'm just fine, sir. And how about you? I'm doing just fine. But, you know, every time I talk to you, I see airlines readjusting their schedules, none of which still make sense to me. Uh, they're still, you know, publishing schedules with 33-minute connect times. Um, the supply chain is a mess. Uh, Boeing can't make their deliveries. So airlines that even wanted to add more routes are constrained because they just don't have the equipment. And at the same time, they're changing their schedules so that a lot of smaller communities are not getting air service. You have a different take on this, don't you? Yeah, a lot of smaller communities, people think that if you don't have air service at the local airport, the community is dead. And that just isn't the case. It's not the 1890s with the railroad coming through town. You know, it's an, I'll give you an example. Toledo, Ohio, wonderful place. Um, They've got no network air service, but they do have network air service. 40 minutes away, they got over 300 flights a day to 100 destinations at Detroit. Uh, the, the local airport's never going to support it because the consumer is going to be driving to an airport where they can get faster connections, faster destinations, and, and lower fares than Toledo will ever be able to support. So the fact is, because you don't have service, the local airport doesn't mean that community is without air service. And the other thing that, that you've pointed out is infrastructure problems. For example, every small airport goes knocking on the doors of the majors every year saying, will you please fly here? 
and they're even offering them incredible incentives or tax deferments or buying X number of seats to make sure that a certain load factor. But then they don't build in the infrastructure that you need at an airport. Um, you know, if I land at an airport in X city of the United States and there's no rental car service there, there are no taxis there, uh, there's no hotel nearby, why am I going to that airport? Well, yeah, they, they said we have to have it at the local airport to attract economic development. You can't attract economic development when, you know, Mr. Big Cheese wants to come to town to have a meeting and he's got a hitchhike home or a hitchhike to the hotel. That's one big issue. But another thing is fleets. You know, the small jets are now going away, 50-seaters. 76-seaters, there's very, very few coming online. And it's going to be, as we go into the future, it's going to be 100 seats, 120 seats will be the floor 20 years from now. So a lot of communities are going to have to prepare for that as well. There's no going back. Now, how do you prepare for that if you don't have the population base? You have to understand that you have to tune up the pickup truck. Every air transfer, every air travel event is multimodal. It involves ground, unless you live on an aircraft carrier. You know, it's, 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 it's a, a car to the airport, uh, airport to another airport and a car. You have to have both, both pieces of that. And if you're not there, that piece of the car is going to be a lot longer. You know, you we're looking at, say, Dubuque, Iowa. You know, they're, they're under the impression they're going to get United or American or Delta back again. They won't. But their option now is about an hour away in Cedar Rapids. That's the only game in town. Well, you know, we've been throughout Mississippi this week in places like Biloxi and Pass Christiane and uh, Bay St. Louis and, of course, Gulfport. And if you take a look at the map, yes, you can fly out of Gulfport, you can fly out of Biloxi, but if you're looking for choice, you, you drive to New Orleans. It's exactly it. When we work with New Orleans to get London service, the way we pitched it to British Airways was we're not talking about just New Orleans. We're talking about the I-10 corridor, literally, from Gulfport, because people could drive to New Orleans, get a nonstop to London, in less time than getting on an airplane in Gulfport and flying to anywhere else to connect to London. So that's what we're up, up against, if you want to put it that way. It's time. Very often, that 90-minute drive, when you add it to the, to the time you're flying, it's less than what you could get at the local airport at, in, in any case. So, Mike, crystal ball it for us. We've just been through a crazy 18 months already where every plane's been full, airfares have been near historic highs, hotel rates have been above historic highs, and people are just wanting to go everywhere all the time. Is that going to continue? I, 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 I think it has to do with the price of eggs, literally. I'm not so sure you can cram that many people into Florida. I, I'm not sure that you can cram that many people into Las Vegas who are, you know, looking to spend some discretionary dollars. That may soften. It hasn't yet, but it, we've had some, you know, watch Allegiant. They've pulled down some flying, and they're a better economic indicator than anything else. So I, I think we're going to see some flattening, but I'm not so sure, Peter, that air tra travel, leisure air travel was a lot higher on the spend chain than it used to be, a lot more important to consumers. That's true. But now let's take a look. You just mentioned Allegiant. How about the other low-cost carriers or the low-fare carriers, the Frontiers, the Spirits? How are they going to fare? Well, you know, the, you just mentioned, too, that are losing money right now. Uh, Spirit is suffering also from the fact that some of the engines they got from Pratt Whitney have some flaws that need to get fixed, and they have, you know, 14 to 20 airplanes grounded, and at all times trying to fix that. 
But the real issue is, you know, what I'm looking at is the JetBlue merger or acquisition of Spirit, and that's not a merger. That's just JetBlue getting a couple hundred airplanes they can put somewhere else, which in my mind would be very positive for the consumer because JetBlue is not an impulse carrier. JetBlue is a mainline-type carrier, so that'd be better. But we, I don't think we're going to see any real big startups. I understand that Breeze is one of my favorites, but they only fly day of week, you know, two days a week, three days a week out of every market. I'm not so sure they can make as big an impact as other carriers can. Well, when I take a look at where Breeze is flying, I kind of like – the, the, the you know the, the city pairs that David Nealman has picked like you know Providence Rhode Island to LAX I I thought that was brilliant. It, it is absolutely brilliant. Norfolk to Los Angeles things like he's got the equipment the uh, the Bombardier A two A two twenty three they can fly from Providence to Buffalo and make money and fly from Providence to uh, Shannon and make money so he's got that but. The real issue is they're not afraid of pulling out of markets. They just decided to dump Tulsa, uh, and they've added other markets. But one reason they're going to be here is they're flexible. That doesn't, it doesn't mean they don't love you, but if they don't make money, they leave. Well, I, I, in the last, what, 18 months, since that's our, our favorite figure, I've seen Frontier announce service to probably 25 different cities, and within three months they were out of those cities. Oh, no, no, no question. I mean, we had them almost convinced to move out of Denver in a big way to go to Colorado Springs. And at one point, they had like about eight or nine cities they were flying to out of Colorado Springs, doing very well. And then over a period of about two months, poof, they were almost gone. Now they are gone. So they come and they go, which leads me to say, you know, how do you get brand loyalty? Um, you know, why even have a frequent flyer program when you're not going to frequently fly anyplace? But that's their model. And I'm not so sure it works. One of the things they're doing also putting in. Um, ground level boarding in Denver, no jetways in Denver. You know, it's 20 degrees there today. I'm sure people would love to board an airplane outside. So I don't know where their direction is going right now at, at Frontier. Well, I want to go back to something you said about Spirit and JetBlue because you, you saw the famous memo that sort of got leaked that the minute that thing happens, the minute that deal goes through, if it goes through in its current incarnation, they're expecting to raise fares 40%. The difference is they'll be getting fares on those airplanes up 40%, but they won't be on the same routes. Let's keep in mind, Spirit is an impulse carrier that flies mainly to places like Florida, uh, Las Vegas, or the West Coast, where it's impulse traffic. JetBlue's not going to fly those markets at all. They're going to be putting those on more mainline-type markets. So it's not like suddenly the, the, the cost of flying between, let's say, Concord, North Carolina, and Orlando is going to go up 40%. That airplane's going to go somewhere else, and that's that's the hard part here. But keep in mind, uh, the difference is JetBlue's after filling demand and Spirit's after incre- uh, creating demand with low fares. It's a different model. So I'm not totally against that acquisition at all. Well, of course, the minute, the minute, front, excuse me, the minute JetBlue gets those planes, assuming the deal goes through, they're going to announce rapid expansion overseas. That's really what they want to do. They want to fly more long-haul overseas flights. Absolutely. Another thing they're getting, not just planes, they're getting people sitting in the cockpit and the cabin. They're getting crews immediately. So they don't have to grow incrementally. You know, they're going to get 200 airplanes and a whole slew of airplanes that are on order at relatively low lease rates. So it's it's a positive thing. Keep in mind, JetBlue launching airplanes to Europe does not uh, 
first a competitive picture whatsoever. And I love them coming out and saying, if they can't get into Amsterdam, KLM should not be flying into JFK. Love that. <laughs> good, luck, good luck with that argument, though. Oh, absolutely. But, hey, you know, stand up and take a swipe. But, you know, them adding, a, you know, long-haul flying across the Atlantic, all that does is add more options for consumers. And, you know, their, their, their service is still pretty damn good. My thanks to Mike. And then one of my favorite topics, airline frequent flyer programs. So how hard is it to earn status these days with an airline? And what does that actually get you? Not to mention, how hard is it to actually redeem those miles for flights? Zach Griffin, the points guy, has crunched the numbers. Zach Griff, how are you, man? Hey, Peter. Good to hear from you. Thank you so much for having me again. It's always great to be here, and especially chatting chatting all things airports, airline lounges, frequent flyer programs, some of my favorite stuff. Well, listen, it's some it's some of the, my most anger-inducing stuff, so we're going to have some fun today, maybe, and maybe come up with some conclusions for our audience, because let's go back to, you know, 1981, when airlines started the frequent flyer programs. They were true loyalty programs. You were rewarded by the for the number of flights you flew and the number of miles you flew, and they were reachable awards. They were attainable. They were redeemable. You know, if you got 25,000 miles, you actually got a free coach domestic ticket. Emphasis on the word free, but it still was relatively free. Uh, a first-class ticket was sometimes 40,000 miles, maybe 50,000 miles. And then the airlines, like, went nuts. Um, and they decided that they could make more money from the airline frequent flyer programs than actually flying airplanes, which, by the way, they were right. Um, and that's what's going on now. Uh, each airline, with, with their credit card affiliations, with American Express and Delta, Citibank with American, Chase with United, and Southwest. These are airlines that are getting paid billions, I'm not exaggerating, billions of dollars every year for selling miles to these banks so that ostensibly you earn one mile per dollar spent. But then, of course, comes the problem. Do you ever get a chance to redeem them when the airlines control the redemption levels, when the airlines control the valuation of the of the miles? And... Of course, and we've talked about this on the show already, uh, and we're continuing to talk about it, the, the announcement a couple of weeks ago, which Delta ended up rolling back a little bit, of changes in their frequent flyer program that went from a loyalty program to a privilege program where it no longer mattered how often you flew or how many miles you flew. It only got down to how much money you spend. So set the record yeah. straight here, Zach. Where are we? Yeah, I mean, I think you, you really laid it out pretty nicely. And I like to sum up the transition from where these programs started as frequent flyer programs in these days. And this is especially true with Delta Sky Miles program. Uh, they are seeing it as a frequent spender program or a frequent rebate program. It is not at all anymore about how far you fly, how many flights you take with Delta or its partners. It's really about how much money are you giving Delta? Are you transacting with the airline and its partners uh, that matters in terms of, you know, your, your how Delta perceives you as a loyal traveler? And, you know, it, it's absolutely upsetting for someone who spent the last 20, 30, 40 years, whatever it's been, even if you just spent the last five years 
earning status with Delta and trying to you know accrue a lot of miles with them, only to have uh, the 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 goalposts or uh, the thresholds changed on you like this so drastically. And it, it, it's understandable why there's been so much frustration from the frequent flyer community around these changes, so much so that Delta has definitely walked some of it back to, to, to where it was uh, before they announced these changes. Although one thing, Zach, when the CEO of Delta, Ed Bastian, made an announcement that, oh, maybe we went a little too far, he never said it was a bad decision. He never said they were wrong. and He never apologized. What he really said... And if anybody wants to disagree with me at Delta, you know our number. Uh, he, what he really said was, we never should have made the changes all at the same time. Yeah. So yeah. so there's no guarantee whatsoever that they're not going to go back and do the exact same thing over a period of three or six months as opposed to just two weeks. So we're not out of the woods yet. Not at all. And I think, Peter, you, you raise a really interesting point. And it's pretty clear, uh, not just from Delta, to be honest with you, that the airlines, as they're envisioning the future of their frequent flyer program, have largely shifted to a model in which what matters most is how much you spend. Uh, you're awarded most based on that. You earn elite status. You earn all the perks based on how much you spend. Uh, and I think it's just a matter of time. We saw it with American Airlines with their introduction of what they call loyalty points uh, a few years back. We're seeing it now with Delta going all in on their medallion qualification dollars uh, metric. And so it's something that, that all the airlines right now uh, have been thinking about, have been implementing. Uh, I think absolutely uh, where Bastion was, was right to say that, you know, they did it like two, they ripped off the Band-Aid way too quickly. But, but I'm, I'm, I'm on board with you. I think this is something, you know, maybe next year Delta will go out and, you know, implement the full suite of changes that it tried to uh, just a few weeks ago. So, Zach, when you're dealing with air, airlines right now that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be kind, their attitude is arrogant and their attitude is entitled. And we haven't even dealt with the lounge issues that were affiliated with their co-branded credit cards at American Express at Delta. I'm, I don't know about your chat rooms, but my email traffic was, was, was on fire from so many of my audience saying, I'm never going to fly Delta again. I'm never going to go in their lounge again. Now, look, if you live in Atlanta, you're going to fly Delta again, right? You don't have a choice. And that's unfortunately the reality for many people uh, in Atlanta, Minneapolis, Detroit, places where you know Delta is a stronghold. And, and it's the same also with American and Dallas, Fort Worth and Charlotte, uh, United, big hubs in Denver, you know, obviously Chicago, uh, Washington, D.C. So in many cases, where you are will dictate which I mean, I'm sure you could connect, but, but at the end of the day, most people are trying to get where they're trying to go. And, you know, kind of dealing and handling these changes, there's still some ways to, to, to be strategic about it. But I think one thing that's been most interesting to me is to see the rise of the status matches that some of the competitor airlines, namely JetBlue and Alaska, uh, that, you know, smaller airlines, not the size of your big network carriers like Delta or United or American, uh, but these smaller airlines were capitalizing on the um, on the frustration that so many flyers have towards the changes that have been announced where they're trying to win people's loyalty 
And I think it's personally most interesting in Seattle because Alaska and Delta have fought there for so many years now for the local market. Uh, and to see now Alaska capitalizing it over over in the Pacific Northwest, it would be really interesting to see what happens. Yeah, so yeah I mean, Alaska's going to the Delta frequent flyers saying, hey, whatever, have, whatever status you have at Delta, we'll match it. And JetBlue is doing the same uh, in some markets like New York and L.A. and Chicago. And it would be interesting to see what happens because if everybody says, great, I'm jumping ship, I'm going with JetBlue, blue or i'm going with alaska then the burden falls to those two airlines to deliver the goods as well and it's unfortunately uh, at the end of the day it's a, it's a zero-sum game right because this is what delta argues and what the major carriers are saying is the demand for these products for the fancy first class seats with the live lap beds and the fancy champagnes and the wines and everything and even the lounges at the airport it, it's, a, it's a supply and demand game at the end of the day. And because the demand is strong there for people who seemingly are paying for these products or their businesses are paying for these you know, fancy credit cards that include all the accesses and things, uh, it's leading to overcrowding. It's leading to um, you know expectations that aren't met, that people aren't getting upgrades. They're not getting the benefits that they think they're going to. And I think that a lot of uh, the changes, certainly from Delta, uh, and especially on the lounge thing, it's been designed to simply like reduce overcrowding and to make it the lounges more comfortable for people. Uh, you know, but it's a zero sum game at the end of it. Yeah, but you know what the deal is, Zach. If you know the old line of I would never join a club that would have me as a member. Remember, Groucho Marx said yeah. that. Well, what what about a club that would have me as a member but won't let me in? And what you're dealing with, which is why we're seeing so much anger among American Express cardholders who are affiliated with Delta, is they say that one of the reasons why I got the American Express card was to have access to the lounge and uh, with Delta. And then Delta saying, oh, you can only come so many times per year. Well, excuse me? The fact that Delta oversold the, the, the flight when it comes to the lounge is not my problem. The, 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 they have to figure out another way to do it. And so now, now they're coming back saying, okay, well, maybe you can come 10 times a year now. The principle here is what's at stake. And you're giving me a perk and then, you're, then you're, you're marginalizing it or you're taking part of it away. That's sort of a declaration of war on consumers. And I think one of the reasons why Ed Bastian said, I think we went a little too far, is that so many cardholders with American Express got so angry that basically said yeah. we're canceling it. And this is the, and this is the company that's paying Delta Airlines seven billion dollars a year for mileage. I think that you know people were able to connect the dots and do the math, and it was not a pretty picture. Uh, absolutely, I think that that's a that's a fantastic point. Um, and I think American Express, you know, part of part of the relationship with Delta is it's, it's a two sided relationship, and they need to hold up their you know Delta needs to get people signing up for the Amex cards, and people were really. People were livid. I mean, it was not just my inbox or your inbox, Peter. I think it was it was all over the news. I was I Twitter, X, Instagram, TikTok, uh, even people who you never thought would be so uh, kind of irritated by these changes. My thanks to Zach, to Mike Boyd, and to Don Gilbertson, and my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions. Be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, and there's a lot of it, just log on 
to petergreenberg.com. The Ion Travel Podcast is produced by Amanda Morris and Anthony Protis Chung. For more content from Peter Greenberg and the Ion Travel team, visit petergreenberg.com. Ion Travel is a production of CBS News Radio. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts.